0: This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This week, we're dealing with fear.
1: Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, had this example about um, when you kiss your child at night before you put your child to bed, you should say to yourself, I am kissing a mortal. And the idea here is to remind yourself that this child can and eventually will die and it might happen tomorrow and what it's doing is it's preparing you for the storm which eventually is going to come so no matter how smoothly things are going for you right now eventually a storm is coming and if you want to be able to cope with it um, you have to start preparing yourself while things are going pretty well
0: We're all afraid of something, and there's a certain conventional wisdom that says that's not necessarily a bad thing. Fear can be constructive. It's a spur to action. It heightens the senses, and there are plenty of mountain climbers and big wave surfers who will tell you that they never feel more alive than when they're facing and overcoming fear. But not everyone agrees. In fact, I'm talking with someone this week for whom fear is a vice. His name is Tyler Paytas, and he's a research fellow in philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And his take on fear is rooted in the Stoic tradition.
1: The Stoics had a a general negative view towards emotions, so it wasn't just fear. But um, there's a couple of reasons why they were um, much more sceptical about the emotions than most people are today. Um, The first is that... They had this view of what is distinctive or characteristic of human beings, which is our capacity for reason, our rationality. Um, and so to be an excellent human being is to be governed by reason and to be to be rational. And they saw the emotions as obstacles or hindrances, things that could interfere um, with our ability to reason and to act in accordance with our reason. Also, there's this, this stoic principle that's known as the dichotomy of control which says basically there are two types of things. There are things that are are under your control and things that are not under your control. And the things that you don't have any control over are all of the external things. Um, things like your health, your financial situation, your social status. Um, you can certainly do things to improve those, but um, they can also be taken away from you at some point, no matter um, how careful you are. But what is always under your control is the type of person you are and your character and your will and how you choose to live. And the Stoics saw emotions as things that tend to be directed towards those external things, which are not the important things. So your anger and your fear and your jealousy, they're pointing you towards things like your physical safety and your social status, um, things like that. And, you know, money, et cetera, um, that are just not what we should really be focusing on um, to be excellent human beings.
0: And were the Stoics concerned primarily with with what we, I mean, you've just mentioned, you know, fear, anger, jealousy, this kind of thing. What about more positive or what we see today or a lot of people see as more positive emotions? Were they also somehow suspect in the Stoic Mm. perspective?
1: Yeah, to an extent. Um, So, of course, there are emotions that seem more positive, such as, you know, joy or love or compassion. Um, But the the attitude there is um, you have to be very disciplined and very careful um, because even these things can definitely lead you astray. Um, And so the best type of emotional response would be sort of a you know, taking some sort of delight in the fact that you are living well and responding to your judgments about what the right thing to do is and helping other people and, and sort of being content in that way. Um, but letting your, your feelings of love or sympathy, um, those can certainly get carried away and cause you to do things that are actually, you know, deeply wrong. Nowadays we look at so many emotions as, as really excellent features of us, but um, there's still a skepticism about even the, the positive ones.
0: So how does fear sit within what you might call contemporary virtue ethics? Is it is it seen as a negative thing? Is there any of that sort of stoic suspicion? Um not really. So
1: the the view that I, I advocate is is pretty controversial because what I would call the standard view among contemporary philosophers is that Fear itself is neither virtue nor vice, neither good nor bad. What matters is how do you respond to your fear when it arises? So if you recognize that in this situation, you need to confront the danger, but the fear gets the best of you and you end up running away instead, well, then you've exhibited the vice of cowardice. Um, whereas if you overcome your fear, you exhibit the virtue of courage, but fear itself is, is seen as just neutral, it's just this, this state or this this emotion that arises in us, but really it's about the response, um, whereas my, my view is that actually the response itself, being in a state of fear, there's already something very problematic about it and we should try to prevent that from, from coming about.
0: Well, you've really um, nailed your colors to the mast in this very interesting paper of yours that I've just been reading. You, you go so far as to say that fear is a vice. What kind of vice are you talking about?
1: Yeah. So. We can distinguish, uh, and there's a common distinction in virtue theory nowadays between what you might call a a substantive vice and a structural vice. So a substantive vice has to do with the values a person has, what do you really care about? So um, if you care too much about yourself, you're selfish, or maybe you care about inflicting harm on others, you're cruel. Those are substantive because they're about the values that you have, whereas a structural vice is not so much about the values you have, but rather the obstacles and the the struggles you have with governing yourself according to your own values. So maybe I struggle with um, laziness or procrastination. You know, even if I overall care a lot about working hard and helping other people, I have these sort of structural impediments. And I think that fear is a type of structural impediment, a structural vice, um, because it's a hindrance, it's an obstacle that, that gets in the way of our doing what we judge to be best
0: by our own lives. There's a strong physiological aspect to fear though isn't there it's that shot of adrenaline the the fight or flight response and i mean this is something that people would argue is just hardwired into us at a at a, a physical level it's it's just in our in our brains i mean how can this constitute a state to which we can attach moral significance
1: Yeah, so I think it is um, sort of in our nature, and one thing I try to do, though, in the paper is show that merely thinking of terms uh, of fear in terms of the fight-or-flight response, this physiological alarm, that's not going to capture a lot of important cases where we want to say that someone either is or is not afraid. So um, I try to illustrate this with the example of a boxer who is about to have a championship um, bout and they're sitting in their locker room and the, the match is going to start in a few hours and they're having this fight or flight response their pupils are dilated, their their hearts beating faster but suppose that this boxer doesn't have any desire whatsoever to avoid the fight. They believe they're going to win and they've been training their entire life for this moment and you couldn't pay this person enough to not go through with this. I think in that case it would be very strange to say that the boxer is actually afraid whereas if you imagine the boxer's opponent, who's also having this physiological alarm response, but at the same time they're contemplating, you know, faking an injury during warm-ups to, to have the match be canceled, or maybe sneaking out of the arena. I think that person is afraid. Um, Uh, And so this shows that merely having the fight or flight is not really what what fear is about um, for the purposes of doing um, agent evaluation. Now, um, psychologists sometimes talk about it just in terms of the fight or flight response, and I don't have a problem with that, but I think it's missing something important if we just stick with that um, when we're doing virtue theory.
0: Well, you have this um, idea, which is really central to your work here, which you call the recalcitrant avoidance desire model, the RAD model of fear. Can you outline that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. So based on the example I just gave where I, I try to show that fight or flight by itself isn't enough. You might think that what we really need for fear is the fight or flight alarm response combined with some sort of motivation to avoid. But as I thought about it more, it seemed like even that wouldn't be sufficient. It doesn't cover all the cases. Um, so I have a, an imaginary case involving a, a real person. I just chose uh, to stick with the boxing theme, uh, former heavyweight champion Lennox Lewis. So imagine that Lewis is out at a pub, hanging out with friends, having a nice night, and as often happens to famous retired athletes, there is somebody at the pub who um, has had a few too many drinks and challenges uh, Lewis to a fight or starts telling everybody else, you know, I could knock out Lennox Lewis if he would just step outside and fight. And so word gets around and Lewis hears that this big, somewhat threatening man is making these claims about wanting to go outside and fight. And Lewis can tell that, you know, this is certainly not an a safe perfectly safe situation this this person is certainly a threat and he has this physiological arousal the fight-or-flight response and He's you know immediately motivated to just leave the pub gather his friends and and find a different place to hang out Imagine that this this drunk guy who was making these threats. He then says triumphantly "Uh, Look the great Lennox Lewis is afraid to fight me Um, I think the way that this scenario played out it's not at all clear that Lewis was actually afraid. It could be that his desire to leave, his motivation to leave was just a matter of his recognizing that there's nothing at all to be gained from confronting this guy and having some street fight where he'll probably get arrested and it'll ruin everybody's night. Um, and so this to me suggests that the fight or flight plus a motivation to avoid is not sufficient for fear. So the idea I came up with was that the motivation to avoid has to in some sense be resistant to your judgments or, or or independent from your judgments. So what the model says is the first component is you have this this physiological alarm response going on. Um, you also have the motivation to avoid, but this motivation or this desire to avoid, it's resistant initially at least to your judgments about what the right thing to do is. So I see the threatening object, I have the the alarm response, I'm motivated to avoid it. And this motivation would not go away just as soon as I realized that the right thing to do is to confront. Um, It's something that I would have to struggle with even after I recognize that in this context, the right thing to do is to confront the danger rather than avoid.
0: And so how do things like phobias fit into this sort of model? This is a very uh, pertinent one for me because I had to deal with a large spider in the car this morning on the way to work, right? Not a rational fear response at all. How does this sort of thing fit in with your, your model of recalcitrant avoidance desire?
1: Yeah, good. So one one worry that you might have about what I've just said is that I'm, I'm making it too overly intellectualized because I'm, I'm tying in facts about um, what your your judgments would be about what the right thing to do is. So in the spider case, I see the spider and I have this um, immediate reaction. I have this motivation to what I've also had issues with spiders and I was nervous <laughs> moving to Australia because everybody told me about the spiders. Fortunately, I haven't had um, too many issues. But yeah, if I see a spider, especially a large one, I'm going to have this um, this physiological alarm response and I'm going to have this motivation to avoid. And that's going to arise well before... I actually, you know, have time to to make a judgment about what the right thing to do is. But what determines whether I'm in a state of fear is what either does or would happen were I to judge that the right thing to do right now is to go and pick up the spider with my bare hands. Perhaps like there's a a young child nearby and, you know, for whatever reason, the the, the best course of action seems clearly to just go pick up the spider and move it. If I were to make that judgment and this motivation to avoid would still be there, it's not eliminated by my judgment, then what that shows is I'm in the grip of something. I'm actually afraid. Um, And that's true even if I haven't actually made the judgment yet, whether or not I'm actually in a state of fear, according to this model, is um, determined by what would happen were I to judge in favor of confrontation. Would the desire go away or would it be this lingering thing that I still have to wrestle with? And I think based off of, of some of these cases that I talk about, there's good reason to think that what's distinctive of fear is that you're in the grip of it and it doesn't go away as soon as you judge that you should confront rather than avoid.
0: This is RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Tyler Paytas. We're talking about fear. Well, there's a lot of fear out there these days, a lot to be fearful of, and a lot of people with strong vested interests in keeping the fear alive. So given all of that, how reasonable is it to expect that we could become truly fearless?
1: Like a lot of our virtue and vice concepts, and I really, I think basically all of them, it's gonna be a matter of degree. So, you know, take paradigmatic vices like being selfish or self-absorbed. I don't know if very many people can become completely free of those things. Like that's just something that's, you know, hardwired into us but it's, you can certainly make progress and become more fearless or, or less self-centered. And I think as long as it's true that you can make progress, it's justifiable to say that this counts as a vice or a virtue. I don't know if I've met anyone who I would say is absolutely fearless. Um, I think there are historical examples. One example that comes to mind is um, the Spartans, right? So the Spartans um, clearly had this project of cultivating fearlessness, and by all accounts, it was successful. Now, of course, I don't wanna advocate for Spartan culture because there's many, many abhorrent things about it, but I think we can recognize something deeply admirable about it which was the way that they would respond to dangers when they they knew that the right thing to do was to confront. Um, there's all these you know famous examples of things that they they would say in response to threats when. The Persians were invading and, and they were told that, you know, this is the largest army in the world and there's so many archers that their arrows are going to blot out the sun. And the response is, well, good, then we'll, we'll fight in the shade. Now, I, I think, again, without advocating being militaristic or advocating violence, I think there's something deeply admirable about um, that's how you respond when there's a danger and you know the right thing to do is clearly to, to confront because you have to defend yourself and, and, your, and your family and people who can't defend themselves.
0: What about clinical fear conditions, things like post-traumatic stress disorder? Do these fall under your rubric of vices?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, um one thing I want to be clear about when I when I talk about this is um to say that fear is a vice is not to say that everyone who experiences fear is thereby, you know, deserving of some strong criticism and some strong blame response such that they should feel guilty and we should feel anger towards them. Um, I think the idea is that fear is a difficulty that a person needs to try to make progress on. And someone who's been through some horrific trauma is potentially going to be more susceptible to having fear response. Um, but that's also true of, of other responses, like they might be more susceptible to anger or hatred. And we, what we want to say there is, is you know, anger, hatred, fear. The, we can still say these things are bad, but, you know, these people have an excuse, and it's understandable why they're having these particular struggles. Um, nonetheless, it's still the goal to help them work on these things so that they can overcome them.
0: The great boxer, castamato he, he used to talk about the ways in which you can use fear. You can make it work for you. He said, understand fear so that you can manipulate it. How do you respond to that idea that fear might be a vice, but it can be a very useful vice, a character building vice, if you like?
1: Yeah. So I think the language of fear, I mean, and, and talking about fear uh, as, as a term, there's ambiguity there. And sometimes we we mean different things. So one thing we might mean, and one thing he might have meant is just the general desire to avoid failure. And certainly it's good to have desires to avoid bad outcomes. Um, But again, I don't think that's exactly what fear is. The other thing is this, as we talked about before, this fight or flight alarm response, certainly that's beneficial. And having your, um, your senses heightened can be quite useful when you're in a uh, a situation that requires strength and um, various physical feats. So we can say that, yeah, the the fight or flight response can be useful. Desiring to avoid bad outcomes, that's certainly good. Um, but that still leaves room to say that having this response that has a grip on you such that it's not appropriately responsive to your judgments about what's right, I think that is still problematic. And actually, I just uh, I saw an interview a few days ago that gave me some reassurance here. There's a, a mixed martial artist named Habib Nurmagomedov, who just, uh, he won the lightweight championship in the UFC uh, about a month ago, and he was doing an interview and he was drawing a distinction between concern and fear, and he was saying that Concern is definitely important and definitely healthy. Being fully aware of what your opponent can do and uh, having your senses heightened, etc. But he said that if you let fear come about, then you're in deep trouble because then it becomes much more difficult, if not impossible, for your brain to have full control over what your body's doing. You might, you know, have all this adrenaline going and maybe you're going to, you know, swing wildly and, and, and be um, effective in a limited way that way. But to, to really be precise and to act um, in a skilled A smart way, um, he was claiming that fear is actually problematic. And I think that that's sort of the distinction that I've been trying to make is, you know, between being alarmed and having this arousal and also sort of being concerned to avoid this bad outcome versus being in the grip of this response that we have to struggle against. And I think the
0: best way to be is to prevent that response from coming about. So how do we prevent that response? What are some effective practices for eliminating fear?
1: If you talk to psychologists, uh, like a clinical psychologist will tell you the, the most effective way of treating things like phobias or other forms of, you know, things like anxiety disorders is to have exposure. So... Um, with the spider example, you know the the classic exposure therapy for that is, you know, first you start with uh, a cartoon drawing of a spider and get used to looking at that, and then maybe a toy spider, um, and then maybe you know a, a dead spider until you become increasingly comfortable um, with a real spider. And I think that's been shown to be effective. And I think that can be useful for whatever a person happens to be afraid of. Other things that I think are useful: meditation. Um, you know, meditation has become increasingly popular and in psychologists and scientists have have recognized a lot of benefits for meditation. I think one such benefit is it calms you and it decreases your attachment to your material existence and the, the story of your life in a way that I think makes you less susceptible to being overtaken by responses such as fear. Um, And then a third one is just reflection, and and the Stoics talked about this, um, reflecting on the fact that everything is impermanent and reflecting on the fact that there are certain things that are just way more important than your own personal safety, way more important even than your relationship with your loved ones. What's more important is your integrity and your character and being a good person and being able to use reason to do the right thing. Um, and I think reflecting on these things can actually help to um, be less
0: susceptible to having the fear response a truly fearless person if that's what we're looking at here what kind of person is that is that a person who has attained this state of of virtue or is it maybe just someone who's um, who's completely rash and maybe a little deficient in some way
1: Well, yeah, the the truly fearless agent is certainly going to be different from the common person. One thing that I want to say about the fearless person is they're not completely oblivious to threats and dangers, and they're not going to be foolhardy and just run into danger for no good reason. What's going to be unique about them is that when there is a danger and they know that running head on into it is the right thing to do, they're not gonna have any internal struggle. Um, but I think, yeah, there there's other differences that will probably come about. Um, you're probably going to look at your own life and your relationships with others, and you're gonna end up having values and an attitude towards the things that you care about. That is a little bit different. So um, Epictetus, the, the Stoic philosopher, had this example about um, when you kiss your child, At night before you put your child to bed, you should say to yourself, I am kissing a mortal. And the idea here is to remind yourself that this child can and eventually will die and it might happen tomorrow. And I think what it's doing is it's preparing you for the storm, which eventually is going to come. So no matter how smoothly things are going for you right now, eventually a storm is coming. And if you want to be able to cope with it um, in a truly excellent way, um, you have to start preparing yourself while things are going pretty well. And over time, um, you are going to be different, but I think different in in a much better way.
0: Apart from Australian spiders, what are you afraid of and uh, how do you deal with it?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's plenty of things that I, I'm afraid of and have been afraid of. Um, you know, I've, like many people, I've had sort of a, a slight fear of death for a long time and. I think I'm, I'm getting better. I mean, what most of us do um, is we just sort of ignore that and try not to think about it. But I think over the past few years, I've become much more comfortable with the thought of my own death. And I think it's partly from um, studying Stoicism and, and practicing meditation. And I think this has been uh, a real benefit in sort of thinking about my life as, you know, it, it sounds you know very harsh, but sort of preparing to die. And I found that when I, feel like I'm doing the right things, and I'm treating people well, and um, I'm working hard and taking care of myself and taking care of those around me, the thought of death is, is much less distressing. All kinds of horrible things can happen to us. Um, and again, I, I go back to, to Stoic teachings, right? So no matter what happens to my physical body, what the, the outside world cannot do is it cannot touch my will and my resolve and my character. Um, and my commitment to doing the right thing. And I think even that is is very reassuring. Now, um, I don't want to to make light of of extreme physical suffering and act like that's not something that we should try to mitigate as much as possible. and and I, I don't wish that on anyone. But I think if it's inevitable, the best remedy that we have available to us is to remind ourselves that what ultimately matters and what nobody can take away, from us as as people is our commitment to doing the right thing and to having good character. And and I think there's there's some deep and, and useful consolation
0: in that. Tyler Paytas, Research Fellow in Philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne with a fearless take on fear. And this has been The Philosopher's Zone. Fear not, we will be back next week. I'm David Rutledge. See you then.